Welcome to Dr. Cindy Speaks. Regular musings and reflections on politics, current events, and life as a congressional candidate. Dr. Cindy Banyer is a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, our community. She's running for the people of Southwest Florida, trying to flip Florida 19 from red to blue. Listen as she speaks truth to power and gets real about being a mom and a candidate. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Cindy Banyer, Democratic candidate for U.S. House of Representatives, Florida 19. I'm a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, and our community. And I'm so excited today to be joining you with an old classmate of mine from Japan, Milad. He has just made an incredible journey with his family from Afghanistan to the United States. And so I thought it would be a great opportunity for people to hear firsthand what was happening and what the journey looks like. And so that we can put a human touch on something that has been in the news and can sometimes get lost in the conversation around policy. So I'd like to say welcome. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much, Cynthia, and I'm very glad being here today. Thank you so much for the garden too, yes. Wonderful. And so you and I first met, we were just talking about this, it was over 13 years ago, is that right? That's true, yes. Um, 13 years ago, we met back in Japan when we were young students at that time, energetic, and then very hopeful for a good future. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And if I remember correctly, you were studying, you were doing your master's program at our alma mater, Ritz Mayakan, Asia Pacific University. And did you come there on the JDS scholarship? I was a JICA scholar, and then I was doing international cooperation policy, focusing on regional developments. Great, yes. And and that was my master's was international <laughs> cooperation policy too. So we have that shared vision of a peaceful world and a cooperative planet addressing the biggest problems that we have today. Exactly, yes. So yes. at that time you were thinking about, actually for my case, I was thinking for a better world, of course, and then at the beginning a better future for Afghans and then to work with the with the communities at the grassroots level to give them hope and to work with them to bring them like development ideas for the grassroots level yes yes yeah and that's where we were working yeah so we were both schooled in community development and putting people first so exactly yeah so that was your studies. So tell us a little bit of wind back. So we met, you were doing your studies. I was finishing my studies. We were just talking about how my oldest daughter was a baby. <laughs> <laughs> and then you finished up your studies. And then where did you go from? Yes. 
I, when I finished my studies back in 2010, I returned back home. I returned to Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan. And then I joined back my previous work in the Ministry of Rural Rehabilitation and Development as a senior program officer working for the local institutions developments. Actually, I have worked for almost two and a half years in that capacity. And then I started a new project, a cross-border cooperation project between Afghanistan and Tajikistan, which was also focused for the alternative development as well as the livelihood improvement between Afghanistan and Tajikistan in the cross-border areas. And then for almost two and a half years, I worked for that project in bo on both sides of the border. And then I joined another project as a project manager for a US funded project, which was funded by United States Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, INL, for an alternative development project. So almost for three and a half years, I worked for that project. And then I worked for almost for one year for Central Command as a project manager for Ministry of Interior Affairs. And then I started to work for peace process in Afghanistan for almost one and a half years. And then I became a project, a program manager for one of the U.S. Funded agencies, which is called United States Institute of Peace, mm -hmm. as a program manager for the peace process. Basically, I was involved with the social peace building process at the mm -hmm. grassroots level. So we were trying to start or to bring a bottom-up peace building approach. Yes, this was my journey from 2010 to the day that Kabul has fallen and that the Taliban on August 15th, 2021. Yes, yeah. I'm calling that, sorry, I'm calling that as a black day for Afghanistan, yeah. that everything just from last 20 years, everything just vanished only in 24 hours and we lost everything. Hope, yeah. wishes, and all the achievements and the values that we have fought for that for the last 20 days, uh, 20 yeah. years, only we lost only in 24 hours. Yeah. So I remember, so, you know, we, with the U.S., just for context too, for everybody who's tuning in, we're talking about, we're speaking with my former classmate, Malad, about his work that he was doing in Afghanistan. And we had, the United States had been engaged in uh, a military engagement in Afghanistan since it was 2001, correct? Yes, from 2001, from September, from November right. 2001. Right. So for 20 years, the United States had been engaged in military engagements in Afghanistan, but then also trying to nation build and do some of the peace and development component of it, which there's been a lot of critiques around how it's a difficult as a military agency to be able to achieve that. But they were trying to continue to have some engagements in that where 
the development and the coordination with the local people continued to work to help the people of Afghanistan. So the United States had been working in that for 20 years. So there had been a long military engagement uh, with the United States in Afghanistan, and you were somebody who was locally lived there, grew up there, family there, that had been working with various agencies, government, NGO, and then with the United States funded agencies to do some of that development and nation building work. Is that a fair way to say it? That's, that's um, all right. That's, yes, uh, that's the way. I was working, I was some, in some point, I was also engaged with some military, a joint military and civic support of US, uh, US-backed agencies. Good, okay. So let's now talk about that day that, what did you call it, the Black Day for Afghanistan. So I, I when things started to go out, uh, go go on. We were watching it from over here in the United States. I knew that I had several of my classmates like yourself and our friend in at the university. university. His name is Farid. Yes. Yes. Several of our other friends that were there and I started reaching out because I wanted to see what was going on because sometimes it was hard to grasp everything as it was happening in real time and understanding that different reporting agencies are going to report things differently. So I wanted to see what my my friends on the ground were saying. And you had actually made a post that was just heart touching about getting ready to leave and your children and how you would go about your work and get your espresso and then your children packing their books. And it was such a very poignant and human post. Can you just take us back to where you were leading up to those last hours and days in Kabul? Yes, thank you so much. Basically, we have started a very normal day on August 15th, as usual. I went to work in the morning when I reached the office, it was somehow looking abnormal on the streets on August 15. I was in the office uh, by 10 o'clock in the morning. I received a call from my dad that, where are you? I said, I'm in the office. He said that, be careful that the Taliban entered into the city and they're going to target the people first who are working with the U.S.-backed agencies. Of course, that was an obvious fact that I was working with, with the U.S. Institute of Peace. And then by 11 o'clock, my supervisor came to me and asked me, okay, the only plan for now is call back home and then ask your wife and your kids to be ready for evacuation because we cannot stay longer in the city. They are going to search us, they're going to find us, they're going to target us. 
11.30 when I called back home and then said that we have to leave the city, we have to leave the country because there is an evacuation plan by my organization. So the first thing that what I heard was that my mom was crying because back in Afghanistan, we are, we are living in a big families. We are living with our dad, with our mom, like, it was very difficult for my mom and for my dad that their grandchildren are leaving them with that situation, leaving them with fear, with no hope for the future, with an unclear future that the kids are leaving them. So it was very difficult. The first thing I heard that was my mom, that she was crying and I said, okay, this is what happened to us. This is, if we don't leave the country, they are going to target us. They are going to come to us. So by 3.30 o'clock in the afternoon, I stayed in the office. I couldn't leave because all these streets, roads were, there were the presence, heavy presence of the Taliban in the city. And we couldn't leave the office because we are officially dressed. And of course, you may know that Taliban are dressing very traditionally. Mm -hmm. And as we were dressing very officially, and it was an, very obvious if we were going to the streets. So we were an obvious target for them. So then by 3.30 in the afternoon, we decided, okay, what will happen, happen, then we have to leave the office. Because if we are, stay in the office, that we, we will be in, more easier target for them. So by 3.30 we left the office and then I even, I couldn't go directly to home because I knew that it's like, it's daylight, during the daylights I cannot go home. So I stayed outside up to 9.30 o'clock in the evening. So by 9.30 in the evening, I was able to reach home. And then the first ever thing, when I noticed there was like two backpacks that my wife collected the very necessary and essential things. Yeah, as Cindy said, my story and the first thing that, that I noticed, one of the backpacks was a little bit heavy. And I asked my wife, why is it a little bit heavy? She said, because the kids, yeah. Want their books. So they, they, they have packed their books because I said, okay, we will we'll find some books. At least we have to get some food. We have to get their clothes, some very basic clothes. My kids said, no, we don't need clothes. We don't need food, but we need our books. And that was so heart touching to me. And then from one side, I could not tolerate what I've heard from my kids because that was too hard that they're leaving their home, they're leaving their country, they're leaving their schools, they're leaving their friends, they're leaving their teachers. But from another side, I became a little bit, I mean, hopeful for their future that at least see under this situation when we are living, still they are thinking about their books, about their school, about their, their, their future, about their education. So 
I became hopeful. On that day, we could not, that they could not evacuate us. And then we had to wait for a, another week. So every day and night, then we personally, I had to move from one place to another place. So I had to turn off my mobile phones for several hours during the day. Just three days later, I've been informed that the Taliban entered the, into our office and they searched desk by desk and they searched all the files, they searched all the cupboards, the desks. Mm. We had a server system over there in the office, a database, and they have searched the database. And now they have access to all our information because on August 15, we didn't we, we didn't have enough time to destroy everything that is to extract the data from the database and other external hard drives that we had in the office. Or we tried to burn some documents in the office, but we were not able to burn them all you know, only in two hours or three hours because it yeah. was a very short time. Then after almost... 11 days from Kabul fall under the Taliban. On August 26th, six o'clock in the morning, we left home. For, excuse me, five o'clock in the morning, we, we left home. And then we, by six o'clock, we arrived in front of the airport. Mm. In front of the airport, we noticed a huge number of the people that are waiting to enter the airport. So there were mostly people who were working with the international organizations, with the U.S. agencies, with the military forces, with Afghanistan National Defense and Security Forces. So all these poor people that just they were waiting to enter the airport and then to be evacuated from from Kabul. But the airport gates were blocked by the Taliban, and they were not able to to reach to the Marines who were responsible for the evacuation of the Afghans. So it was very difficult for us. And then we had to wait up to 18 hours. And then we were mm -hmm. able to be, to enter into the, to the airport the next day, three o'clock in the morning. So for all these 18 hours, the kids and the families, they were on the bus. We were not allowed to go outside the bus, no food, no time to going out. So it was very difficult almost for 18 hours. After 18 hours, we were able to enter to the airport under the wild shootings, under the direct shootings, and the tear gases the Taliban were using to get the people away from the airport gates. Yeah. So finally we entered to the gate. This is one part, this was one part of our journey. But how these 11 days from August, 20, uh, August 15 up to August 26 had gone and then we had to go through. It was another story. So all the days and nights, just beside we, we were escaping from one location to another location, the biggest problem was thinking about how the achievements and the values of last 20 years, from 2001 up to 2021, they were all lost only, on, only in one week. Yeah, that's amazing. And yes. 
So it sounds you once your office realized that you were going to be a target, then you were you spent those eleven days moving from place to keep yourself and your family safe from being targeted and killed. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Because at the beginning when they entered into the city, they completely entered with a different mentality. When the Taliban entered into the city, their mentality was like who ever or who has a proper dress or shaving beards, so they are our prime target. That was the reason that we had to move from one place to another place. And we knew that their intelligence system were working very um, cleverly and very deeply, and they were also involved from the very last year, in the very last years. Mm-hmm. So we knew that all the inf- they have the information and they're going to find us and they're going to target us. That's why we prefer to, to move from one place to another place, not to stay in one place. So it was, yes, it was a big nightmare that we have spent 11 days under the... It's a good thing then that you were not um, captured or injured by them. So let's, so you're, you got your family, got your kids, you waited on the bus. Now, right at before or right after you left so you get in you get into the airport and you're processed to get onto the plane tell us a little bit about that because one thing that i think i want us here in the united states my my listeners here in in florida and across the country to understand is what was the process how were they getting people in and how did that work yes uh good point Basically, at the beginning, at the um, very three or four days at the beginning, so there was not a proper system because uh, it was an emergency case. And then whoever was able to enter into the airport, they were, they were getting on the planes, on the C-17 planes, and they were uh, evacuated to different destinations, to Doha, to Kuwait, to Germany, and to other destinations, and to Abu Dhabi and, and UAE, United Arab Emirates. But from the four, day four, the Marines, they, have, they, have, they put some procedures, like they, they started biometrics, they started registrations. At least who, who was supposed to be evacuated should have some primary documents, the passport or the national ID card, because there are some, uh, there are a lot, uh, there are like big rumors that people are evacuated with the electricity belts from Kabul, or they were evacuated with some very primary documents. That's true, because mm-hmm. at the very three or uh, at the beginning three or four days, like there were no proper system in place. And nobody knew what to do. Everybody was just rushing to the airport and they were trying to be evacuated. So they were just the only indicator for evacuation was just to enter the into the, into the airport. Yeah. Yeah. And then to get on the plane. That was it. 
But after four or five days, they put some mechanisms and established some, some systems to biometric the people and also to check some primary documents like passports and national ID cards. In our case also, they, they checked our national ID cards, they checked our passports and they gave us like some wristbands and then there were some numbers, codes. And, and after that, we had to wait for, for eight hours Mm. under the sun in the airport mm. until the planes, mm. all C-17 planes, there were too many of them in the airport. Mm. So finally, we were able to get on the C-17, 470 people only on mm. one C-17. And then flew, we flew all the way, seven hours, 470 people on C-17 plane from Kabul to Kuwait. Okay, to Kuwait. So that's like the ones that maybe we saw some pictures of because very in the very beginning of the evacuations, some of the most prominent pictures coming out to the United States was a full cargo style plane with just the bottom open. Is that the C-17? That's, that's completely true. And then I have this experience. Yes, that's a cargo plane. C-17 is very famous and the U.S. forces, U.S. Air Forces for cargo. And it's okay. a very famous plane. And then the capacity of these planes may be max 300 people if they're sitting. But in the, in the emergency evacuation process, up to 470 people, the plane we were evacuated, we were 470 people. But we have heard that there were 600 that they, at the beginning, 600 people on the plane. So five hours from Kabul to Kuwait, like families, elders, women, kids. And yes, it was very difficult to tolerate yeah. for five hours. Of course, no seat, no belts, nothing. And then from Kuwait to Spain, another seven, seven hours. So and the same plane or different? Same plane, 12 hours from Kabul to Kuwait and then to Rota, Spain. So, okay, good. So then you got to Spain, you and your family had this harrowing journey. And just by way of explanation, uh, especially because it made big news here in the United States, you actually got on a plane. It was about two hours before there was an attack and explosion at the Kabul airport. Is that correct? Uh, yes. The, the when they when that was actually the there was like it was the ISIS or Islamic State's target that uh, they targeted the Kabul airport, which unfortunately thirteen Marines I think they lost their lives and more than uh, seventy Afghan locals lost lost their lives. Exactly yes. It, ha it just happened two hours after we entered into the airport. It, ha it has happened the gate, on the gate that we entered into the airport. Mm, Though wow. they were calling the, that gate Alfaredo. So the, it, it happened on Al Al Alfaredo gate. So when ISIS targeted that and, and 14, 13, 13, 14 Marines were killed, unfortunately, mm -hmm. 60 people, Afghan locals were, were died. Wow. 
so then you get to Spain. So tell us a little bit about then how from Spain to the U.S. to to now being settled with your family and uh, a new job here. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, so when we arrived in Spain, so a little bit we got relaxed and a little bit comfortable. So five days we stayed in Spain and then we flew to Dallas Airport on September 1st. We arrived in Dallas uh, Airport in Washington, and then we have been processed, and then we were dispatched to New Mexico Holloman Air Force Base. The camp was newly established, and for the Afghan evacuees, and I'm so glad that in the camp, the first that they were calling the first impression, the last impression, I've been faced with one of the very kind. Air Force me, like Colonel Bag, he's now a good friend of me. And then he welcomed us with a very, I mean, like happy face, a smile. And then he gave us a very warm welcome in the, on the base. So though their lives and the camps are not easy, it's difficult. Because just imagine, like 200 or 180 families are living under the tents with the very limited access to the health services, mm -hmm. limited access to three times food. But the service men and women of the United States and the camps, they were just 24 hours, seven days a week, they were serving these people. They were trying their best. They were not hesitating for any support to the new arrivals. And they were calling us as a guest. And they were saying, you are our guests. So Colonel Back in, in Holloman Air Force Base and his team, all the Air Force men and women, they were, they, they were trying their best. And they were, they, were, they were so kind to everybody, to men and women, to the kids. I was noticing that how the military men and women, they were playing with the kids. They were spending time with them. So they were so kind. And this was how the problems and the challenges and the difficulties of the evacuation was getting a little bit relieved. So people were like, they were feeling a little bit, I mean, they, they, they were feeling respect they're feeling that they are respected. They're received in a, in a humanitarian way. In my case and my family, we stayed for 19 days until we, our documents got processed because we have gone through the registration process for our employment authorization documents. We have gone through the biometrics. We have gone through the medical, primary medical processes and then for 19 days I stayed in in Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico and then I decided to leave the camp and I consulted with the people around with the camp I mean the with the military in the camp and also I discussed with the Department of State with IAM so finally I 
I decided to leave the camp by my own because my family members are living in Denver, Colorado. And I decided to choose Denver, Colorado as my final destination. And then, yeah, on, on September 20th, I arrived in Denver. And then I slowly, I started my new life. I got a house. Nice. Um, and yeah, after a couple of weeks, my kids were able to go to school. One of them is on eighth grade and another is fourth grade. My wife could start English language class. I started to search for work. And yeah, I, I, I'm now so happy that I'm working with one of the resettlement agencies. I'm working with the International Rescue Committee as a community sponsorship program coordinator now. And I'm so happy that I'm going to work early in the morning and then coming back home late evening. But I'm so happy that I'm serving the humanity and I'm serving the new arrivals who are really in need. Good. That's great. Wow. What an amazing journey. So it sounds like you're saying that there was quite a process to get all of your documentation. This is something that in the political arena in the United States, a lot of people have talked about. And so I think that I, I want everybody to know that there was processing and people who came into the United States had their documentation and there were agencies that were helping and I know there's other nonprofit agencies IRC is one of them that's philanthropic funded grant funded donor funded that helps it so it's not always just a hundred percent U.S. tax dollars as people like to say so there's other components that are helping people and then there's folks like you who did have other family members here that can help as well and I'm so happy to hear that your children and your wife, everybody's uh, settling in. And it really, it made me so proud to be an American when you said that you were welcomed here as a guest and with kindness. And because that is what I believe America should be. It should be the place that is stepping up to help people in humanitarian crisis that should be working to develop international cooperation to make the world a better place. Exactly. And I, I will say as somebody who had, I had a lot of criticism for the military component in Afghanistan. I've been very out about that, but I think the feeling was right in helping people to maintain a free and forward-thinking country. And you were very much a part of that. And it's been, of all of the political components and military components that I've talked about, and I, I did in a, a podcast a little while back with former ambassador Peter Galbraith, who had been the UN uh, special envoy, who had been outspoken about corruption in Afghanistan from the very beginning. And he had spoken on this as well. It's just the big feeling of wanting people to, to be well and the heartbreak of not being able to successfully set up institutions in the long run, not being able to understand all of the political dynamics going on in Afghanistan to be able to overcome the shortcomings of people coming from the outside, oftentimes with good intentions to be able to leave 
those long lasting institutions. It's a very, it's a very fraught situation. And I'm so happy though, that there are folks like you who are able to get out, who are continuing to work and support your family. I know that you still have family there and it's going to be a, a, a difficult challenge still moving forward, but at least I can say that I'm proud that we were able to receive your family and families like yours with what I believe is the values that I hold and aligned as Americans. Thank you so much. And yes, let me take you just quickly, let me take you back in from 2001 and then military, yes, about the military operations and how the um, situation was, war is war. And then America was in a war in Afghanistan. They were there to fight the extremism. They were there to fight for the humanity. They were there to bring a, a better life for the Afghans and for their Afghan allies. We know that. That's a different story. And then, of course, there were corruption. That was the responsibility of Afghans to build their country. That was the responsibility of Afghans to do nation building. Nobody else can do that for Afghans. Only Afghans could do that. That was their, our responsibility to do nation building, to fight against corruption, to fight against terrorism, to fight against poppy cultivation in, the, in, the, in Afghanistan. That was our responsibility. So what happened during the last 20 years, the chapter is closed, but when the new chapter is started, receiving Afghan evacuees as guests in the United States and the Air Force and the Air military bases, and the way the military were behaving with the new guests, with their new, I mean, with the new friends, that's, that's completely so kind. They, were, they have been so kind. They were, they, they, were, they were so respectful to each individual Afghan new arrival. So that's the humanity. Yeah, that that's is. the humanity. And of course, the, the administration as well. I think it's the second time in the history of this big or mass evacuation. But the first time about the, how they ease the process, I mean, the documentation and the bureaucratic processes, how they, both the House, the Senate, and as well as the administration, the government, the federal government, they've eased the process of the documentation. That's a historical thing. Yeah. So just imagine people, other people, other has to wait for years to get their employment authorization documents while Afghans or the new arrivals just they're receiving in a couple of days. Yeah. That's so kind of them. So yeah. this, this is called humanity. And we are so thankful to our American friends as well as in our neighborhoods. While we are settled in our neighborhoods, there is smile, their kind hearts. So that's amazing. And we are that's, so thankful for that. That's good. I'm so glad to hear that. And I do wish that you 
continue to incur in engage with kindness and people in the community are, are continuing to learn and understand the journey that you've made with your family. So I just want to say thank you so much, Milad, for joining me here today and sharing this story. It's been so just, just amazing to hear what you've been through. And I just, I really um, wish you and your family the best and hopefully we'll be able to connect again soon. Thank you so much, Lisa. I wish you a nice and great day. Thank Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Cindy Speaks. If you'd like to learn more about her campaign, go to cindybenye.com or connect with her directly at vote at cindybenye.com. We love connecting with people. Contents of this podcast are paid for and approved by friends of Sandy Benye.